Hi, I'm Holly Fry, and this is Drawn, the story of animation. Today, we're setting our sights on the future. I have been fascinated by the idea of predicting the future ever since I first saw Tex Avery's World of Tomorrow series as a kid. Ladies and gentlemen, believe it or not, this is your house of tomorrow, completely prefabricated and ready to set up. Some of the jokes in those shorts are wildly out of date by today's standards. They can be a little bit sexist. This new directional taillight signal is equipped with a loudspeaker. Turning left, turning left, turning right, turning right. It also works with women drivers. Uh, turning right, uh, no, left, uh, right, uh, straight ahead, uh, left, uh, stop, uh, no, right. Uh, Sometimes racist. The Indians go for this classic convertible. <laughs> And sometimes just dark. The trophy room contains many rare exhibits of the hunt. Killed June 8, 1925. Killed April 20th, 1933. Killed September 3rd, 1942. But there were also these incredible flashes of creativity and brilliance that really sparked my young mind. A car of the future made to fold up into your pocket to avoid parking? No more parking problems. If you own this little number. A bathtub in the living room so you could always watch TV? Actually, the home of tomorrow will be built around the television set. A pop-up incubator to enable farmers to hatch eggs more quickly? In the old days, hatching eggs used to take three weeks. The modern pop-up incubator requires only a few seconds. And of course, there were some doozy hybrids in those cartoons. Should the atmosphere in the room be too dry, merely press this button for moisture. And then there was the 1956 Mary Melodies cartoon Rocket by Baby, directed by Chuck Jones. While it wasn't set in the future, it did examine, comedically, how humans might deal with being confronted by a space-age problem an accidental swap of a human baby with a Martian baby. Darling, I'm so worried about baby. He's... he's doing your income tax. These were all completely mind-blowing ideas to me. I knew they were intended to be funny, but they also had an ingenuity. And it was really the first time that I, as a kid, thought about the future of mankind and that it hinges on humans to create it. Those simple cartoons loaded with sight gags taught me to look at the world in a whole new way. Thinking about it now as an adult, I wanted to know more about the relationship between animation and its portrayals of the future. You know, the future has been portrayed in so many ways in animation. Everything from like Rocket by Baby to, um, is it the Highways of Tomorrow that Disney did? All the way up to Futurama. Right. In so many different ways. Why do you think animation is so fascinated with the space age and the future? Well, two reasons. First, it is the medium of imagination. And I I think your list is way too small. I think that going all the way back to George Powell's 
Destination Moon, I think animation has, in fact, literally been the medium for representing what hasn't happened yet. That's Eddie Von Mueller. He's an animation historian and a professor at Emory University. So NASA hired animators to make graphics of how the moon landing would look because we hadn't landed on the moon. Because animation is not tied to what is present in front of the camera. Uh, Norman Claren, the great Canadian art animator, said, uh, imagination is what thought would look like if thought could be seen, which is, I think, a beautiful summary. So since the future, by definition, cannot be in our hands, I think animation is almost the only instrument for portraying the future. So I think that's a big part of it. Dad, if you're my dad. Of course, you're not my dad. You're here with a gun because I'm a clone. I guess I have all your daughter's memories. So I guess I was her, which makes me related to her, but I don't relate to her. She left her family and me, which means I relate to them. So if you kill me, fine, you're not killing her, but you're killing a real family. When I talked to animation historian Jerry Beck, he pointed out that looking to the future has been part of animation's DNA from the beginning. Because looking to the future is a way to examine the present. Almost everything in animation is based on the era that it's made in. It's a mirror reflecting the period of time that we're in. And just because science fiction existed from Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, animation has always had some reflection of it. You know, even in the silent era, there, there's Coco the Clown cartoons and Felix the Cat cartoons where they go to other planets and meet aliens. You know, and in early cartoons from Fleischer and, and whatever, similarly in the 1930s, in the 1930s, um, uh, there was that whole hoax with uh, Orson Welles and War of the Worlds. Wait a minute, something's happening. And make out a small beam of light against a mirror. There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. And uh, movies like the Flash Gordon serials were in movie theaters. So these things were mimicked and mocked in cartoons. You know, in Flash Gordon, the comic strip in the newspaper depicted what this future life might look like in comic strip terms. So all of this was always fair game for, you know, for animation. I mean, I literally could sit here and start thinking about all my favorite science fiction moments in cartoons and future ones. There's a great Bugs Bunny, the old gray hair, where he runs into old Elmer Fudd, and he's old, and they have Buck Wadge's whitening quick wabbit killer. Hey, smell-o-vision, we places television? Holy mackerel. Where's my wife? Oh, here it is. What? A Buck Wadge's whitening quick wabbit killer. Oh, boy. Now let me at that little old wabbit. By the time you get into the 1950s, there's Destination Moon in movie theaters, there's science fiction films like uh, Forbidden Planet and uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still about outer space and aliens and, of course, all the monsters that come down from other planets that are in movies. So all of this is great fodder for animated cartoons to make fun of. By the end of the 50s, Sputnik and the space race and, of course, what I call the retro future, the that whole space race thing really it was in the public's consciousness. You know, when you see Toy Story, Andy's toys are a cowboy and a spaceman. And really, in the 1950s particularly, that was the choice of little boys. There were lots and lots of cowboy movies and westerns or space cadet TV shows. But Captain Video and all that was happening at that time. So those were the two options. And Hollywood was gearing up for it. That. I guess it was a meteor, honey. Came awful close, didn't it? Too close for my money. 
go back to that natural fit that Eddie Von Mueller talked about, where animation can fill in the gaps between the here and now and an imagined future. And it's tied, as Eddie explains, to the fact that animation is the place where art and technology come together to break new cinematic ground. But animation is also the playground in which technology and artistry wrestle in creamed corn or jello, depending on what you're allergic to. You know, there's a reason why you know, Disney was fascinated with technology. Animation was one of the first places that sound was synced to film. Animation is one of the first mediums to commercially use color. Animation is the first kind of motion picture that made routine use of computer-generated images, which means that the future is made of imagination implemented through technology. That's what animators do. And in the same way that we always look at the future in very ambivalent terms, Animators always look at technology in very ambivalent terms. On the one hand, the Xerox machine allowed you to make 101 Dalmatians in half the time it took to make something like Pinocchio. On the other hand, put animators out of work and didn't look so hot or it didn't look like what they knew. Eddie brought up an interesting point here. While there is, in some ways, this love fest between animation and the technology that enables artists to create fantastic visions of the future, there is also an aspect of conflict between the two, at least for animators who were already working in the business when computer animation started to take off. So animators, more than other artists, have to live every day with technology in ways that are both interdependent but codependent. Animators love it and hate it. It's so cool that animation can now be a hobby, right, because of this technology. But for people my age, when I was an animator, computers were putting us out of work, right? So I think that 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 ambivalence towards the future is part of the daily working conditions for animators. So on the one hand, you know, animation is how the future can be made visible now. But animators are often, right now, coping with the limitations and threats that futurist technology create. But for creators that grew up right alongside the technology, it's just another tool. The first episode of this series featured several people in the industry talking about how exciting the future of animation is, because the animators of tomorrow have always carried really advanced tech around right in their pockets. For some creators, harnessing all of that tech to create their vision of the future entirely offers up a sort of wish fulfillment. You know, the thing with OKKO is that it's kind of the show that I wish I would have had as a kid. And and I think my crew all write it that way as well. That's Ian Jones-Cordy talking about his show OKKO Let's Be Heroes. Ian worked on the Venture Brothers, Adventure Time, and Steven Universe before launching OKKO. And I asked him if he thought about how his vision of the future will influence the kids of today who watch it. We kind of just think about the stuff that, you know, that we thought was cool when we were younger and just make the show like that. And I'm sure eventually I'll begin to see, like, the results of people thinking that way. But um, I feel like it probably surfaces 
within the series in ways that I'm not aware of yet. You know, I think that one of the best things to do with the project is to do it to find out something about yourself and how you feel. In the year 21X, Lord Boxman opened a store to arm his robot horde. But the heroes of Lakewood Plaza are ready to fight! But what is it actually like to build a futuristic piece of art from the ground up? To me, I guess, world building is really fun. Because I used to be a DM. I am Dungeon Master, your guide in the realm of Dungeons and Dragons. And I think that coming up with the world is the most deeply satisfying part of the whole process. That's producer and writer Eric Kaplan, who worked on Futurama. If anyone wants to tell me what's going on here, I'll be in the lounge. Storytelling can sometimes be really hard work in a certain way that you're just like, well, I want him to not know what's in the castle, but he already went there. I don't want to do that. You know, so there's a sense of kind of like labor to storytelling. But world building is really fun because you just sort of think like sometimes there are these sort of revelatory moments. So I was doing this episode called Parasites Lost about um, the notion of, of super intelligent parasites improving Fry. What are those worms doing to Fry's brain? They're giving it a complete tune-up. A cursory glance would suggest they've doubled his thinking power. My God! Soon he'll be smarter than Cher! And it's like, well, how does he get infected with them? And I always found it funny that I always liked the, um, the sandwich dispensers in, like, bus stations. Because they're like, my goodness, what extremity of hunger are you at? And if you're going to eat the sandwich dispenser from a bus station in North Dakota, which I think I did at some point in my career. What's that black cracker? A tomato. You're not going to eat a sandwich from a truck stop men's room, are you? Eh, what's the worst thing that could happen? Ugh. It's like a party in my mouth and everyone's throwing up. But it's like, who put it there? How long has it been there? Yikes. And, you know, they're in that kind of weird box with the sealant on it. So those are really weird. So we had this futuristic truck stop for spaceships. That moment of eating a truck stop sandwich is from the Futurama episode Parasites Lost. In it, Fry eats just such a sandwich and he gets worms. But the worms, in many ways, actually make him better. They manipulate his physiology in a way that benefits them, but also gives him improved intellect and physical fitness. Look, they're jazzercising Fry's muscles. He'd be as strong and flexible as Gumby and Hercules combined. Gumbercules, I love that guy. And Fry is going to eat the egg salad sandwich, which was just in, and that's how he was going to get infected. (laughs) And then someone else pitched because it's a worm egg salad sandwich. And I was like, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But those two pieces had just kind of come together in my mind that, like, he's infected with worms, and it comes from an egg salad sandwich. But I hadn't thought, oh, it's a worm egg salad sandwich. So that was really fun, because once those two things forge into a thing, it always will be and always ever was thus in a kind of cool way that you're kind of creating the past and the future and the present at the same time. 
But how do you make worms into characters worth watching? That is all part of the world building that Eric was talking about. So I was having a meeting and looking at the designs, and I was like, oh, we, I wish we could jazz up these worms a little bit. And I wanted to add um, this feature that earthworms have, and I don't remember the name, but you know, an earthworm is basically smooth, but around one-fifth of the way down its body, it's got this other texture, like it's wearing a sock, kind of. So we added that. And I was like, whoa, now these things really look like an actual life form, not just a cartoon of a life form. Your Excellency, have you ever been in love? No. I thought I was once, but then I remembered our species reproduces with a cloud of spores. And that seemed really cool. And then I wanted the king of the worms to have one of those old-timey crowns. And I never quite understood until I actually researched this with the help of them. that they, There's the crown, which is the, the ring of metal that you wear on your head. And then there's a kind that's got this sort of fabric pillowing up above, but they're the same thing. <laughs> the, the one with the fabric pillowing up above is just an added doodad that you can put on the circlet crown. But I wanted him to have one of those, which gave him this kind of nutty early Middle Ages slash Byzantine look. I am the Lord Mayor of Cologne. You mean Colin? State your business. So it's funny how once these little details start falling into place, like the details of what the worm looks like and the detail that it's called a worm egg sandwich, it starts to have the imaginative heft of life. And that's very exciting. That's a lot of fun. All I can think of now is my ancestors came over on the sandwich. My ancestors came over on the sandwich. <laughs> I think that was I think that was a Lou Morton line. It's a good one. Listen, you, I was born here. I raised a cloud of children here. My ancestors came over here on the sandwich. No one can make me leave. So once the world and the characters are coming together, your setting on the timeline has to make sense as well. For Futurama, that's the whole premise of the show. Fry is frozen just as the new year 2000 is ushered in, and he wakes up in the year 3000 and then has to figure everything out. So it becomes about two distinctly different points of view, separated culturally by time and interacting. Oh, that jerk. No one hoots at my captain unless they're prepared to take it to the next level. Fry, please. That's sweet, but I'd rather not even dignify them with an ass whooping. Yo, sexy mama, let's get busy and freaky in that order. Hey, Jumbo, how would you like... But sometimes, setting a cartoon much closer to our time makes more sense. The show OKKO Let's Be Heroes is sort of set in the future, but it's a little bit nebulous. So I asked creator Ian Jones-Cordy to clarify where exactly it lives in his mind. The timeline for Lakewood Plaza Turbo yeah. and OKKO is sort of futury, but not quite. Yeah, yeah. Do you think of it as like an alternate path kind of future, near future, or um, or something that you perceive in our timeline? Yeah, I think of it as like sort of like an alternate future. Yeah, the year 21X is just, it's basically our current year, but... The way that when I was a kid, I thought the future would kind of be, but then a little more like down to earth. I don't exactly know how to explain it, but yeah, I feel of it as like, it's almost like it's an alternate reality. Now you've woken up the demon in me. I 
you come to the closet to fight me? You wanted to. Why'd you go and drag up the past? You wanted to. That's not true. You're gonna pay for all those years of beating me, beating me down. Ugh. Were we really like this six to eleven years ago? A balloon cactus bloom in the plaza. A balloon cactus bloom in the plaza. Are you into futurism and like thinking about the future? Um, I mean, I like it a lot better than the past. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think as a kid, like, yeah, I was never really into past stuff. I was always like a kid who wanted to like when kids would be running around the schoolyard pretending they were cowboys. I would be like, I'm a bounty hunter from the future and I have a laser rifle. I will confess, Ian's story delighted me because it was something I completely identified with. When I was a kid, the thing that really sparked my imagination was Star Wars. And for a while, before I matured and developed an appreciation for a wider variety of entertainment, everything else seemed sort of pale by comparison. If there wasn't a spaceship or droids in it, I kind of thought it was lackluster. Master, moving stones around is one thing. This is totally different. No. No different, only different in your mind. This also came up with historian Jerry Beck in our talk. The idea that Star Wars, despite technically being set in the past, launched a whole new era in futuristic animation. You know, the the science fiction world we live in today really does start with Star Wars, despite any 2001s or whatever preceded. Star Wars is really the beginning of this modern era of this sort of thing. All of these things begat these cartoons you know uh, the Jetsons of course was a uh, flip side of the Flintstones but it fit perfectly because it was also the period of in the future we're all going to have rocket packs as we go to work and that was in the public's consciousness that was a, a thing Elroy bedtime and how are things in outer plutonia <laughs> not bad glad to hear it Elroy uh-oh, I gotta sign off. All you know who is barking. I'll talk to you tomorrow on the 14MGY Oscilloscopic. Futurama, which came up just a little while ago, is, as I've said before, one of my favorite shows of all time. Watching Philip J. Fry navigate the future as a person from our time is engaging and funny and touching in a way that few shows, animation or live action, ever achieve. Get ready, because you're about to hear a lot more about it. When I got to talk with voice acting superstar Billy West, who voiced the lead character of Fry, as well as Dr. Zoidberg, Professor Hubert Farnsworth, Zap Brannigan, and Nixon's head, among others, I was beyond eager to start talking to him about Futurama. I know that you love Bugs, but you told me right before we started that your favorite project that you've worked on is Futurama. Yes, it was my favorite show I ever did. Which I have such an insane depth of love for. I can't quite communicate it. Oh, what what you love is this concerted effort of these brilliant, brilliant writers that I've I never really worked with the likes of people like that before. I didn't know what to expect. Sometimes I didn't even get it when I was reading it. You know, it was a stupid joke. It was like, uh, hey, Fry, I heard beer makes you stupid. And he goes, no, it doesn't. And uh, I looked at David Cohen, the director, and I said, David, no, I'm doesn't. Please read it as written. And I went, okay, I'll be back for that $749 fix-it fee. And uh, I saw it on TV. And I went, ah! How stupid I felt. We're making beer. I'm the brewery. I heard alcohol makes you stupid. No, I'm doesn't. 
Actually, Dwight, you're right. Alcohol is very, very bad for children. Who is it who said that the, the brain is an organ for creating the future? I mean, we're always envisioning the future, right? Again, that's producer and writer Eric Kaplan. And one of the first things he referenced immediately when we spoke was the book Understanding Comics, which was written by cartoonist Scott McCloud. And that's one of those books that anyone who loves comics has either read or should read, but it offers a lot of insightful information about storytelling that applies to all mediums. He makes the point that one of the things that comic art does is leaves out information, which makes it almost like a sort of abstract thing. So I view imaginative fiction, and I would put under that genus science fiction, fantasy, and allegory, maybe, as genres which leave out information and create a sort of abstract depiction of human life in order to get to sort of more fundamental truths. So I would say, like, if we're working in the genre of realism, and I, and I do think that realism is one genre among many, we're going to try and get the details of our society correct and capture the imaginative texture of our society right now or, or the historical society in the past that has actually happened. So writing and animating about the future, a world that does not yet exist, opens up the storytelling process to talk about real-world issues from an alternate perspective. Supposing we were telling a story where we want to bleach out some of those details and we want to say, I want to tell a story about what it's like, what it's like to fall in love with someone different from you, but not be limited to the particular details of my society. Um, did you see The Shape of Water? I haven't yet. Oh, then I won't spoil it. But let's just say it's a love between a human and a non-human. Um, I don't think that's spoiling anything that's in the billboards. So it's a love between a human and a non-human. So we could tell a story about that, and we're really telling a story, really, about two different humans, you know, because there are no non-humans around. Um, so it's an imaginative way of telling that sort of basic story without getting encumbered by the details if we were really trying to tell a realistic story about love between a, a Jewish man and a Puerto Rican woman or something like that. Then we'd have to get into the details of what it's like to be a Puerto Rican woman in L.A. and all this. But no, we're going to say some of those details aren't important for the overall point we're making. And then so science fiction is like one subgenre of imaginative literature. And you're saying, well, what if you did it in the future and you want to tell some kind of plausible, realistic story of how that society could actually come to be? Come on. We're taking you pigs to the gym. The gymnasium? Excellent. Excellent. For some reason, I'm frisky as a squid on Tuesday. The next example Eric and I talked about was an episode of Futurama that he wrote that use the unique focus available once you strip away the trappings of our world. It is also inspired by another famous representation of the future, Star Trek. In the Amok Time episode of Gene Roddenberry's famous space exploration series, Spock must return to his homeworld for the Vulcan mating season. How do Vulcans choose their mates? I guess the rest of us assume that it's done quite logically. For example, you mentioned, why must I be a crustacean in love? And this was a meditation upon the relationship between sex and love, the relationship between the biological drives that cause one to meet and falling in love. 
you will have to rush him to his ancient homeworld, which will shortly erupt in an orgy of invertebrate sex. Oh, baby, I'm there! Fry, do you even understand the word invertebrate? Nope, but that's not the word I'm interested in. So I came up with, you know, in, in consultation with David Cohen, um, I came up with a a world where the creatures have no concept of love at all. They simply mate, and they have a mating season, and this was sort of an homage to the Star Trek episode, Amok Time, where they have a mating season where they have mating frenzy. And Zoidberg is sort of a, a portmanteau invertebrate, so he had many features of different invertebrate phyla that we found interesting. But one is that, like salmon, and the audience are like, but they're vertebrates. And I think, okay, yes, they are. He's also vertebrates, phylum. So he uh, swims upstream to spawn like a salmon, so he goes to his home planet of Decapod 10 to mate. Who's the lucky lobsterina? I don't know yet, but I shall attract one this afternoon with an erotic display. It's a amazing that your people can fall in love so fast. Love? That word is unknown here. I'm simply looking for a female swollen with eggs to accept my genetic material. You and me both, brother. And so that's all a bunch of jazz for me to to achieve my quarry, which is to tell a story about the relationship between love and sex. In Eric's Futurama episode, Fry, in his earnest but bumbling way, tries to help Zoidberg by introducing the idea of romance into his crustacean friend's wooing routine. So he's a being who has never... His whole species doesn't have the concept of love, but then he gets it from Fry. Dr. Zoidberg, your mating display failed. Why are you trying to talk to me? I have no idea. Start with a compliment. Tell her she looks thin. You seem malnourished. Are you suffering from internal parasites? Why, yes. Thanks for noticing. So that's the whole, it's a whole sort of armature of science fiction in order to deal with this abstract question. And to me, it's sort of more fun and it's more interesting because in the, you know, a planet where no one has ever heard of love, that is a high concept idea. And it's not really true in real life. There is no planet where no one has heard of love as far as we know. So if you wanted to tell that story, you'd have to, in the realist genre, you'd have to say, well, here's a person who's never experienced love, blah, blah, blah. And of course, I asked Billy West what it was like as a voice actor to create vocalizations for beings that we have no real world reference for. When you're doing a show like that, where there is so much futurism Mm -hmm. that is written by such smart people, but you're coming at it as sort of the doofy innocent. Yes. um, Do you approach that material differently than you would something contemporary that is set in the world you know? Um. I think whatever you decide to do, you got to commit to it. In other words, I have a habit of choosing off-the-nose deliveries. Like, I don't want it to be what anybody expects, but you have to commit to it. You have to act like you'd die for that. And uh, whatever world, I mean, there's aliens, of course, that don't come from our world that I've had to do. And I would just... uh, I was a ball of light once, and they said, can you do this? Can you temp it? And I said, temp it? For what? What are you going to do? Oh, we're just going to put, like, a machine on it, you know, and it had to talk. So I just split up my voice sort of like, someday my phone will ring. Someday. You know, it was all broken up. You know, and I'll just try anything. I'm I'm fearless when it comes to that stuff. You know, I know that half the time it'll get thrown on the floor, but... You know, I'll always shoot for something strange. 
But all of that strange, creative work is in service to the ideas that Eric and Jerry both mentioned. Animators and writers are using the future to hold a mirror up to our current world, and they're examining humanity at a remove from reality in a way that really lets the work get to those core relationships we have with each other and with ourselves. And they're sometimes offering the idea of what's possible. Can't get distracted. Gotta brush up on my facts in case I meet some real heroes. If you train hard enough, KO, you could be one too. Huh? You're just saying that because you're my mom. Ah, maybe. But remember this, KO. You don't start out as a hero. You become one. I can become a hero? But where do I begin? The stories Ian Jones, Cordy, and his team are telling with OKKO are really driven by the idea that looking forward is an ultimately hopeful effort. Here's Ian to explain. The show is kind of set in this sort of future where, you know, people have sort of uh, gone past a lot of the petty squabbles of our time. And because they all have superpowers, it's like everything gets blown up into sort of like a sort of sci-fi alternate way of dealing with those things. And I think it's just because, yeah, I think... Our time in the past are, are, they could be better, and hopefully they will be better in the future. I'm the axiom, you will survive. I don't want to survive! I want to live! Looking at the future through animation is fun, and a way to satirize our world and also dream of what could be, and show that no matter the time or setting, all storytelling, no matter the genre or medium, is really just about human connection. And you don't have to be a gun. You are what you choose to be. One of the ways that artists communicate with the audience in animation is through music, and that is the subject of our next episode of Drawn. I want to thank all of the guests who appeared on today's show. And if you would like to write to us, that email address is drawnpodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us all over social media as Drawn Podcast. And you can visit our website, drawnpodcast.com, and see all of the episodes of the series that have been published. 